Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, good morning. Um, This morning we are going to be continuing in our teaching series that we began a few weeks ago. It's entitled The Secret Battle of Ideas About God. And during this time we've been seeking to answer some of life's biggest questions. Three weeks ago I answered the question, am I loved? Two weeks ago Pastor Terry answered the question, why do I hurt? And this morning the question that we want to answer is, Does my life have meaning? Does my life have meaning? And I want you to think about your life right now with that question in mind. Does your life have meaning? I want you to think about that. Now, if the answer to that question is no, then hopefully by by the grace of God, by the end of this message, you will be able to walk out of here and say, yes, my life does have meaning. And maybe this morning you're saying, yes, my life does have meaning. And I want you to Ask yourself, why would you say that? Let me ask you this. In a billion years from now, you will be somewhere. In a billion years from now, can you look back at your life and say, my life had meaning? In other words, are you living a meaningful life? Or can you relate to Ashley Brilliant, who says this, my life has a superb cast, but I can't figure out the plot. Can you relate to that? He's saying, you know, man, I've got a lot of good people in my life. I've got a lot of cool things happening in, in my life. I've even got, I'm doing things. But you know, at the end of the day, my life really doesn't have purpose. I don't see the purpose. I don't see the meaning of what uh, I'm doing. And I can definitely relate to this from time to time. But I can also feel at times that the life that I'm living is very mundane and that it's very repetitive. It feels like what I'm doing is insignificant. Does anyone ever feel like that? That, that it's just a repetitive life and that you're not going anywhere. Maybe you can relate to this video that we're going to watch here. <laughs> can you relate to that? I think we all have a little Mr. Bean in all of us, don't we? Um, I can, I can relate to this because sometimes it feels like we're in an orchestra and I look around and there's some of you guys are just playing your instruments, playing all these scales up and down and I'm over here, you know, and it's like, does my life have meaning? Is it, am am I making a difference in this world? Am I, am I going anywhere? And, you know, when we ask, what is the meaning of life? This is actually a fundamental question that everybody who breathes, who thinks, who lives on the face of the earth is asking. And that's because there is inside of all of us this deep inner longing to know that our lives are a part of something bigger than ourselves, that we are not wasting our lives, that, that our life ha- lives have meaningful purpose. And, you know, this is why children, parents, will come to us and say, Mom, Dad, what can I do because I'm what? bored. I'm bored. And you know, when they say that, when they ask those questions, you know what they're saying? They're saying, right now, mom and dad, my life doesn't have meaning. Can you give me some direction? And that's, a, that's something that we've 
we all have, that's something that our, all of our hearts cry for. And the question, what is the meaning of life, is, is a question that there are many voices in this world that are seeking to answer that for us. And we've been looking at five false worldviews that we've been calling idea viruses that claim to be able to answer that question. But hopefully we're going to see as we go through them that they, they fall short of being able to adequately answer the question of what is the meaning of life. For example, secularism. This is something that we looked at a few weeks ago. Secularism would say that the only thing that exists is uh, all that is that is here is the physical. They would it would say that every problem that we have in life is a material problem, and so secularism would say that the meaning of life is to get all that you can and live as happily as you can right now, because when you die, it's all over. So in one sense, secularism is teaching you live as long as you can, as happily as you can, as you can, because after this life, there is nothing else. Now, new spirituality, which is what Terry talked about a few weeks ago, it actually contradicts secularism. And it says that the material world and suffering are an illusion. And so if you're going to find the meaning of life, you've got to let go of the physical and become one with, with something bigger, like, like the universe, a higher consciousness, a spirit energy, or a force. So the New spirituality would teach that the meaning of life is giving up your individual identity. Now, Marxism, and by the grace of God, we're going to be looking at this next week in more detail. Marxism teaches that every problem that you have in life arises from systemic oppression. And that there are these systems of oppression that we have in our society, such as government, economy, uh, the nuclear family would be one of these, and also the church, that these oppressive systems, if we can just overthrow them, then uh, we will be able to find the meaning of life because they are keeping you from being able to find your true destiny. Islam is one that, by God's grace, we're going to look at in, in two weeks, but it says that the meaning of life is to know and worship God. And you might be thinking, well, that sounds very familiar to know and worship God, right? Because that's what we would teach as disciples of Jesus. But as we get into this in a few weeks, we're going to see that when, when they say to know and worship God, they're not saying the same thing that we're saying to know and worship God. Also, the God that they worship, Allah, is not the God that we worship. So we will, by God's grace, be able to look at that in a couple of weeks. And which leads us to postmodernism. And this is the view that I want to, to kind of camp out on this morning. It's a false worldview, and I'm going to give you a definition for it. It's, it's a somewhat cynical worldview that teaches that there is ultimately, that there is no ultimate meaning in life, and that we ought to be suspicious of those who say there is. I'm going to say that again. Postmodernism teaches that there is no ultimate meaning in life and that we ought to be suspicious of those who say there is. Postmodernism teaches that you can't prove anything because objective truth does not exist. There are no fixed standards. There's no overarching arching stories in life. And because of that, because there's no objective truth, you are free to define your own reality. 
You're, you're free to define your own meaning and your own purpose in life. And the goal of the postmodernist is to deconstruct reason, to deconstruct truth, and to deconstruct knowledge. The late 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, he said this, quote, there are no facts, only interpretations. Now, I want you to think about this quote. There are no facts. What's wrong with this? He's stating this as though it is a fact, right? So this is a self-defeating statement in and of itself. This is foolishness. And really, I could say, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. We're going home. We don't need to, to go any deeper into this. And we would if this um, idea, ideology was not so widespread in our culture. It is a way that people think and without thinking about what they're thinking. So I want us to go a little bit deeper into postmodernism. And the question that I want to ask is, is postmodernism a livable worldview? I want us to look at it and ask the question, is postmodernism a livable view? In other, in other words, is it a reasonable or an optional way to live? Can humanity survive under this worldview? Can, it conti- can we continue to exist? And like I said before, this thinking has greatly influenced our, our modern society. You can see it in some of today's artwork. And I want you to look at this picture here. This is a picture drawn by Cy Twombly, and it was drawn with a blue-colored pencil. And honestly, to me, it looks like something my, my children drew when they were younger. It looks like something I drew when I was younger. But this uh, piece of art that was drawn on a piece of paper was purchased for $2.3 million. So I'm looking for my children's art right now to put up online. So hopefully I'll make some money on that. Uh, this next uh, picture is a painting that was painted by Christopher Wool. And it sold for 4.9 million pounds, which translated into dollars at $6,724,882.50. Just look at it, read it. I think that this painting speaks for itself. Okay. All right. This last picture is the uh, picture of inside of the Museum of Non-Visible Art. Non-Visible visible art, okay? This place really exists. I looked it up on, on the internet. It's got, um, it's got an address. It's in New York City, and it promotes art that exists only in our imaginations. That's why it's called non-visible art, and many, as you can see, visit this, uh, this place, and the establishment assures you that all of its works are 100% real, Okay? Um, they're so real that somebody purchased one of these artwork, pieces of artwork, for $10,000. It's, uh, it's called Fresh Air. So I'm not going to give any more of my thoughts on this. You can think for yourself. This, this is art, and artwork can be subjective, so that I'm going to leave it there. But that's how postmodernism has affected some of our art. But the, the thing that I really want to look at is, does postmodernism work? in the real world, in the way that we live our lives. For example, if you go to the bank and you have $50,000, for some reason you had that, and you deposit $50,000 and you go home and get a letter from your bank that says, we thank you for your deposit. Your reality says that you deposited $50,000, but our reality says it was $50. Have a good day. 
Are you going to be good with that? Or let's say that you're out driving in your car, you come to an intersection where there's a, a red light, and yours is green, it's red on this side, you go through, another car comes and T-bones you on the side, and you get out, and you're like, what in the world? And they say, well, my reality told me that my light was green. That's the kind of thinking that, that, that reasonably cannot work if we're going to continue to exist as a society. This kind of worldview is ludicrous when it comes to the real world. Well, what, what about morality? How does postmodernism deal with morality? Because it has led to the acceptance of what is called moral relativism. And this is, uh, this is what teaches that there is no such thing as absolute morality. In other words, you can't tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. You can't tell me what's right. You can't tell me what's wrong because I, will, I define my own reality. And this worldview has been expressed, it was expressed back in World War II by the Nazis. Again, remember, there are, they would teach that there's no absolutes and that you define your reality. And so the, the Nazis, they labored to define a superhuman race, a master race. Does anyone remember what the race was called? The Aryan race that had pale skin, blonde hair, and blue-eyed people a race that Adolf Hitler himself would have been excluded from. Jeff Myers writes about this. He says, What began as an idea virus plaguing the search for meaning spread into a pandemic in Europe and beyond, annihilating Jews, Poles, Gypsies, homosexuals, people with disabilities, and others who did not qualify to be part of the Nazis' master race. It took a world war to stop them. You know, this is an example of what happens when there is nothing to guide us, when there is nothing to constrain us except our own thoughts and our feelings, when our personal experiences are our guiding compasses in life. This is what happens when we define our own reality. This is what happens when truth is whatever makes you happy in the moment. And this world this worldview has greatly gained traction in our culture as as we're being told to reject God or that you know God doesn't even really exist. What used to be the thinking of drug addicts and flower children and people that really need psychiatric ward or psychotic help, people that really need help, it's now being has become a respectable mainstream mindset. For example, there is a, a biological man who, at the age of 46, he had been married for 23 years, he had seven children, and at the age of 46, he decided to re redefine his reality. And he said, I am no longer a biological male, I am not 46 years old, I'm actually a six-year-old girl. And there's a, there's a family in Canada that, Canada that actually adopted him and allows him, to, from what this article said, allows him to stay at home and play with, with dolls all day long. And he says that, he says this, he says, I can't deny I was married. I can't deny I have children. And I want to stop here and say, why not? I mean, according to postmodernism, you deny that you're 46 and that you're a six-year-old girl. So you could deny that, but at least he's walking in rea reality here. 
He said, I can't deny I was married. I can't deny I have children, but I've moved forward now. I've moved forward now, and I've gone back to being a child. He says, I don't want to be an adult right now. And that's, that's the bottom line right there. He doesn't want to be what he was created to be. And so, you know, instead of supporting him, um, and also instead of looking at him with self-righteous attitudes and, and, and um, you know, wanting to really uh, have a spirit that's not Christ, we need to ask the question, what does this man really need? What, does this, what, what, does this, what should this man be doing? We need to ask him questions like, what about your wife? What about her happiness? What about her care? What about your seven children? Think about that. What you're putting your children through. Um, what about, even greater than that, what about God? Look, man, you got to understand, you were created by God for meaningful purpose. You were, you were created for more than this. And, you know, this is what happens when humanity is told that objective truth does not exist and that you are free to define your own truth, to do whatever is right in your own eyes. And, you know, there are many reasons that we need to reject the postmodern worldview, but the primary reason that I want to encourage us to reject it is because of a man whose name is Jesus. A man who, according to those who heard him, even his enemies said, no one has ever spoken like this man. The crowds were so astonished when he would teach because he would teach to them as one who had authority. And Jesus made claims about himself that if they are not true, they are simply psychotic. For example, you know, Buddha and Muhammad and, and Gandhi, they all claim to point to point people to the truth. Jesus didn't claim to point us to the truth. He looked at us and said, I am the truth. Jesus didn't say, you know, this is the pathway that you need to walk on. He says, I am the way. He also doesn't try to teach us what the meaning of life is. He says, I am the meaning of life. I am life. I am objective truth. That's what Jesus says about himself. And there's this account, we went over it, uh, 20 years ago when we were in the book of John in chapter 6. But in the book of John chapter 6, uh, there is a, a situation where, uh, a, a narrative where Jesus feeds 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves. And when they see him, uh, see it, they become enamored with Jesus. They're, they're like, this is the king. And they try to take him by force and make him king, which he knows that's not why he came this first time. So he goes up into the mountain and, and gets away from him. His disciples go across the uh, Sea of Galilee. That night, Jesus walks across the water on top of the water, scares his disciples, gets in the boat. The boat goes across. And the next morning, we're going to pick up here in chapter 6, verse 25. It says this, when the crowds got up the next morning, they went to the other side. And it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, that sounds like a reasonable question. Rabbi, when did you come here? Notice that Jesus doesn't even try to answer that question. He says this in verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. And you might go, yes, it's a great thing to seek Jesus, but he's not going to commend them for, for what they're doing. Notice here, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill 
of the loaves. You're seeking me not because you, you want me, not because you want the gift giver, but you want the gifts that I give. He says, you're seeking to find life. You're seeking for the meaning of life, but you're looking for it in the wrong places, in the wrong thing. You're falling short of what I'm trying to show you. So verse 27, he says, do not work for the food that perishes. Do not work for the food that perishes. In other words, don't put your heart and and your mind and your soul and your energies in gaining things that are going to fade, in gaining things that are going to perish. But work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him in verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What are they saying here? You know what they're saying? They're saying, what is the meaning of life then? If that's not the meaning of life, what is the meaning of life? What do we need to do so that our lives have purpose? And Jesus answers it in, in John 6, 29. This is my life verse. This, Whenever I get confused and I don't know what life's about, I come to John 6, 29, because Jesus says, this is the work of God, okay? He's going to tell us in just a second what that work is. But this is what he answers here is the meaning of life. This is where you're going to find purpose. And this is what Jesus is saying. It's not in the things of this world. Look what he says. This is the, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Notice he doesn't tell them to do anything. It's not in what you do. It's in who you believe in. Jesus is saying, I am the meaning of life. He's saying, believe in me, follow me. And instead of you defining your reality, I will become your reality. I will become your purpose. And it's, what's so awesome here is that he doesn't leave us to define the meaning of life. He doesn't leave us to, to define what the purpose of life is. He says, I am the meaning of life. And have you ever wondered as you've, been, as you've read about Jesus and you see him just living this disciplined life, Have you ever wondered what his meaning of life was? Have you ever wondered what his purpose in life was? And you might go, well, James, we know what that was. It was me. Because he came to earth to die for me. That was his purpose in life. And you know what? I'm not going to argue with you. That is why he came. He came to die for us. But you know what? That was not his ultimate purpose in life. His ultimate purpose in life was found in John chapter 17, verse 1. It's, his, it's the high priestly prayer that he prayed before he went to the cross. And this is what he says in, that, in John chapter 17, verse 1. He says, Father, the hour has come. Father, the, the time for me to complete my mission has come. Glorify your son, and, and then here's his purpose, that the son may glorify you. What was Jesus' purpose in life? the ultimate purpose for Jesus in life, more than anything, his desire was to glorify his Father, to please him, to make him known, and to know him. And because that was his ultimate purpose in life, that's why he became obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. And so as we follow Jesus, his purpose will become our purpose. And just as his purpose was to glorify God, so our purpose will be to know and to glorify God through knowing Jesus. And we were reminded in Genesis 1.26 that our lives have great meaning. Our, our lives have great purpose because it tells us in Genesis 1.26 that we were created in the image of God. I bring this up to remind us that we are not meaningless, random accidents. Colossians 1.16 teaches us that we were created by him. We were created by Jesus for him. We were created by him for him. We were created by God for a purpose, and that is to be his image bearers. We're, we're like little mirrors uh, that were put on the earth that were meant to not to receive the glory of God, okay? I want to make sure we're clear on that. We weren't created to be worshipped. Do, do you realize that? That's why when people get worshipped, their lives get destroyed. We were not made to, to receive worship. We were made to reflect it reflect the glory. That's what we were designed for, to, to reflect the glory of God. Just like the, the moon. Have you ever noticed the moon when it's beautiful and it's shining? That's not the light it's, it's, that's shining is the reflection of the sun. We see the beauty of, of the moon when it does what it was created to do, and that is to reflect the sun. And in the same way, we discover our meaning, we discover our purpose when we reflect the glory of God by being in relationship with his son. We discover our meaning when instead of us trying to be the central character in the, in the movie or in the play, when we realize that our role is to support the leading actor who is Jesus. When we give Jesus, and he's going to take it anyway, but when, when, when we allow Jesus to have the center stage in our own lives, he's going to take it anyway. Why? Because he deserves it, right? He deserves it. He created all things. Everything that, that is created was created by him. And I love what theologian Abraham Kuyper said. He says, there is not one square inch, not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus does not cry out, this is mine. This belongs to me. Praise God, right? Praise God that, that he rules over all things. And so as believers, as disciples of Christ, as followers, as Christians, we are, we are called to be saturated, saturating our minds and our hearts in who Jesus is. Because when we do, everything that we touch, wherever we go, when we're full of Jesus and he's flowing out, everything we touch, everything that, that uh, we are involved with will leave the imprint of him on it. We will reflect the glory of God and we, that's our purpose wherever we go, wherever he has us. Our purpose, our meaning, our why is to know and glorify God and to bring life into places where there are death, to bring light to darkness, to bring hope to despair, to bring order into chaos, to bring order into chaos. Does our culture not need that right now? That is our purpose, to glorify God by making much of his son. And there is a, a guy named Philip Keller. I don't know if he's actually still alive, but he was a, uh, a shepherd before he became, actually became a pastor of a church. And he wrote a book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And 
in this book, he writes about how if, if sheep are under a good shepherd, that wherever they go, because they eat weeds and they eat undesirable plants, and they fertilize the ground that they're on, I'll let you figure out how, but they fertilize the ground, wherever they go is a better place because they've been there. And he writes this in his book. He says, in my own experience as a sheep rancher, I have, in just a few years, seen two derelict ranches restored to high productivity and usefulness. More than this, what before appeared as depressing eyesores became beautiful, park-like properties of immense worth. Where previously there had been only poverty and pathetic waste, there now followed flourishing fields and rich abundance. In other, in other words, goodness and mercy had followed my flocks. They left behind them something worthwhile, productive, be beautiful, and beneficial to themselves, others, and me. Where they had walked, there followed fertility and weed-free land. Where they had lived, there remained beauty and abundance. The question now comes to me pointedly, is this true of my life? Do I leave a blessing and benediction behind me? That is a great question for us all to be asking ourselves. Is this true of my life? Do we leave a blessing and benediction behind us? Wherever you live, wherever you play, wherever we exist as a church, is the society and, and the culture in which we live influenced by us because Christ is alive and living and controlling us and living within us. And if you're taking notes and you want to know what the heart of this message is, here it is. We find our ultimate meaning in life when our lives reflect the glory of God. We find our ultimate meaning in life when our lives reflect the glory of God, when our lives reveal who God really is. And our lives reflect the glory of God when Jesus is the central focus and the meaning of our lives. And, you know, maybe this morning, as I've been sharing and preaching, you would say, you know, my life really doesn't have meaning. And you've come to a place where you realize, you know, I've actually been following postmodern post thought. I've been defining my own reality. I've been living what's best for me. And the, the Lord is showing you that, you know what? Uh, there's a better way to live. You're looking at your life and it's like destruction. There's, there's confusion. There's death in your own life. Well, Jesus is, is standing before us all saying, come to me. I am the meaning of life. I am objective truth. So if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to come to Christ. Come to Jesus and believe in him whom he has sent. Secondly, you might be here this morning and you might be a believer. You might not be a believer, but you would say that you are, your life is in a place of brokenness. Um, if the truth be known, you, you're feeling, you feel worthless. You feel uh, these, these, these feelings inside of you. And you keep hearing these voices that, that are telling you that you're worthless, um, that nobody loves you, that you're stupid. And, you know, 
These are voices that you're hearing in your head, not because you've made them up, but, but maybe it's because there's somebody in your life that has actually said these things to you. It may be, be a parent uh, who was angry. It may be a sibling. It may be um, someone that you were in a bad dating relationship or someone was just abusing you with, with their words. Uh, it, it could be a boss, a, a coach. I don't know where that came from. But you, you really are being oppressed by those those uh, words, those things that have been told you. And uh, I want to tell you something. If that's you this morning, and sometimes it's me, I'm, I'm in that place. Um, if you're in that place this morning, I want to tell you that you have been lied to. You need to hear that. You have been lied to because you are not worthless. You are not stupid and You are someone that has been loved. Whether you realize it or not, you're valuable. And the reason that I can say this is because God has said it. God himself has said that you are valuable, that you're not stupid. And it's not because of anything you've done. You've got to understand this too. It's not because of anything you've done. It's not anything that you're going to make up for or anything that you're going to do. He loves us while we were yet sinners, while we were yet rebellious. He loves us when we were in in a situation where we were being abused by someone. But you know what the the thing that's uh, ironic to me is I have had people say the things I just shared with you to me. But you know what? I've done the same thing. in in some form or fashion. I've hurt people too. So I've wounded, I've been wounded, I've wounded others. And so I need to be forgiven of how I've treated others at times. And I need to be able to forgive others for what they've done to me. And you know what the answer to how I'm able to do that, how you're able to do that, is when you get that God loves you. That you get that God has said, I love you. How did he say it? He said it by what he did, not just by what he said, but by what he did, by sending his son. Jesus willingly came down here and said, I love you and I'm gonna die for you. I'm gonna pay for your sin. I'm gonna pay for your rebellion so that you can be restored to God and have fellowship with God. That is the gospel. So if you're struggling this morning with those voices, how do you overcome them? By preaching objective truth to yourself to keep reminding yourself that God truly loves you. How do you know? The cross. The cross is a stake that's driven in the ground that will always be there. There is a day that those of us who have put our faith in him will see Jesus face to face. And what are we gonna say? We're always gonna say, thank you, Lord, for what you did for me on the cross. We will never stop praising Jesus for what he did. What he did, his his voice of saying, I love you, is gonna go through eternity. We will always, if I don't know that we will ever question this in heaven, but let's say we did. All we have to do is look at Jesus' nail-pierced hands and feet and his side and say, we know that you love us. You proved it for eternity. So what Jesus did proves that God loves us. It proves that we're worth something, that we're, we're worthy of, 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 of him um, dying for us, not in what we did, but because he said so. And as we teach and preach that to ourselves, as we teach each other this, remind each other this, That's why fellowship is so important. That's why prayer is so important. That's why being in the word is so important. 
as we do this, the voices that are telling you these things that are oppressing you, they will fade. You, you will be set free from them. And if they try to lock you back down, it's the same way you get out of it again, by reminding yourself of the gospel, of what Christ did for you. I want to encourage us to keep believing in God, keep believing in his love for us. Because when we do, we discover why we were created, and that is to know God, to make him known. We were created to know God and to make him known. And that is the meaning of life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.